Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Now, this is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true in writing, whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether they spend their days writing dystopian metafiction or the great Estonian cookbook, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. Now, today I'm delighted to welcome an author and journalist with a long and glorious record of interviewing and writing about celebrities, especially musicians. She spent more than two decades on Fleet Street, where newspapers not only still existed, but were produced from that address, and where she put the questions to interviewees as intimidating as Frank Sinatra, Grace Jones and Princess Margaret, and few stars have escaped her attentions as a broadcaster either. She once shared an apartment with Raquel Welch, but she has also been a prolific writer of books on musicians, including biographies of Mark Bolan, David Bowie and Freddie Mercury, and just this year has published another book on Freddie Mercury and the people with whom he had the closest relationships, a book called Love of My Life. So here to share her five rules of writing rock biographies, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Leslie Ann Jones. Oh, hello, Ed. God, what Hi. a build-up. <laughs> How do we live up to that? Well, richly deserved, I think. Now, you, you, have, you clearly have a masochistic appetite for hard work but when I spoke to you for strong words recently you were slightly regretting having taken on three biographies this year have have they driven you to a special hospital yet not yet no I, I think it was um it was a combination of the lockdown and timing and contracts colliding and working for two publishers at the same time in fact at one point it was three publishers uh, at the height of the pandemic and I was working on nine documentaries, believe it or not, they just kept coming. And because they suddenly discovered that they could make us do all this stuff from home, they could deliver <laughs> a box of kit and, and you would have to get your kids to help you set it all up and so on. And suddenly life became very easy for production companies. So they were flinging all this stuff at me and I was trying to juggle these books as well. It just worked out like that. Uh, normally I wouldn't take on so much work at the same time but the pandemic brought it about so you know how it is it's feast and famine uh, when one works for oneself and so you grab the work with both hands quite um, then try and juggle it somehow yes yeah, very difficult to say no isn't it sometimes so you've written on a wide range of musicians both male and female but you seem to have come especially to iconic male rock stars David Bowie, Freddie Mercury, John Lennon how did they become your specialist subject? Just the way it worked out, really. I mean, I, I turned down more books than I accept contracts to write books about because I have to like them in the first place. They have to be somebody with whom I have some sort of affinity from mm -hmm. my childhood, my teenage years, the past in general. I have to like the music. I couldn't possibly immerse myself in the life of somebody for, you know, up to two years sometimes um, if I'm not really that bothered about the music they make so that's the the first um that's the base stone if you like for me um sometimes the books are my ideas sometimes a publisher will approach me 
and uh, ask me to write about somebody. But the same rule applies always. Um, am I in love with this person? You know, it, it all does actually boil back down to the music. Right. And my, my, my thing about immersing myself in that and almost drowning myself in it to the point that I can't not write about this person. That's, that's where I begin. There has to be passion for me. Um, okay. People might not associate passion with journalism, but that has grown over the years. And of course, what I do now is a, it's a, a variation on journalism, really. All the tricks of the trade that I learned as a newspaper journalist, I apply those in my work as an author. Okay. It's just a greatly extended process. Right. Well, that brings us kind of on to, quite nicely onto your, your rules. So your first rule, um, you say, I bet everyone says this, there are no rules. Do not follow a formula. Find your own. I mean, why is, why is this so important to kind of uh, try and ignore what's gone before? I think it's important in any field of writing, any genre, actually. You need a voice. You need to sound different from what's out there already. Otherwise, why should anybody read your book? If you're just going to repeat what everybody else has told you before about this particular subject, what are you going to learn from this writer? What, what new style, what new manner of engaging me as a reader can this person bring? So that's the most important thing. Uh, you almost have to come up with a brilliant first line and then write a whole book of brilliant first lines. You know, and it has to be something that the reader can't put down. So I'm always aware of that. Um, not that I'm necessarily striving for salacious information or, or shock horror factor or sun headlines. It's, it's not that I'm delving deep to find that kind of thing, but I'm trying to find a new way of presenting this uh, old person, if you like. They generally are old. Um, they're icons, they're vintage, they've lived long lives. Um, Mark Bolan obviously didn't live a long life. He was only 29 when he died, but he lived a life of five old men. You know, he was pretty old when he died for 29 mm -hmm. and he lived that life. So there has to be some, some kernel of interest, some spark, and it has to have a new way of telling the story. Right. Everybody's been written about, haven't they? But Well, I was you know, going to say, I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? With some of these people... These are, you know, you've chosen some of the, the absolute, you know, the biggest stars on the planet who have been kind of looked at from every angle imaginable. How do you, how do you sort of um, approach, uh, you know, how do you find something new in all of this? It's very simple for me. Um, I'm a female music writer. There aren't many of me. Most of the books about major rock stars have been written by male music writers. And I get the sense from having read hundreds of these books that mostly those writers would have liked to have been that person. They would have loved to be a rock star themselves. So they're writing from that point of view. And you never really get the female angle, if you like. So say, for example, with my book on John Lennon, I studied him through the women who were significant in his life and found other dimensions of him that hadn't been brought to the fore before. We knew about Auntie Mimi, we knew about Cynthia, his first wife, we know a lot about Yoko Ono, but we'd never really looked at John through their eyes. We'd looked at them through John's eyes. So I flipped it around and I wanted to go in the other direction. Mm -hmm. I, I sometimes wonder if some of these um, male rock journalists are actually um, uh, quite in love with the people that they're writing about, you know, quite, quite passionately in love with them, you know, in a way that can't really be um, 
you know, it is a bit of a love that cannot speak its name. You know, a male journalist cannot say, what I'm really interested in about this person is that actually I'm, I'm passionately obsessed with them in a almost sort of sexual way. Do you, do you find that's... Um, um, some of those love affairs began when those writers were very young themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just female fans who had posters of their idols on their bedroom walls. The boys did it too. I was in enough boys' bedrooms, including my brothers, to, to, to see that that was the case. And I think that those guys sometimes don't grow out of those obsessions, those passions. And of course, they can't, as you rightly say, they can't state it openly because they have to stand right back from it and study their their idol from a dispassionate point of view. But I think it's there between the lines. You can sometimes hear that screaming, can't you, loudly and clearly. <laughs> you also mentioned, you know, when we were sort of swapping some notes about this conversation, you said you became so immersed in David Bowie that you you became haunted by him. How did that work? I met David when I was a really young child, the first time. A friend of mine at school, um, Lisa Money, her mother was a photographer on a local paper. And my mum and dad used to go to a lot of football events, weekends, and I was sometimes left with Lisa's family. And her mother took us along to an arts lab event, in which I had no idea at the time, because I was very small. What is an arts lab event? Don't know, don't care, but I was taken along to this event. And David Bowie was in the back room of the Three Tons pub on Beckenham High Street, which I drive past all the time because I go that route to, to visit my mother. And there's a red plaque on the wall commemorating David having played at the Three Tons and so on. But there we were in this back room. And Mark Bowman was also there. I didn't know at the time, but he was there standing to one side, listening to David, just strumming an acoustic guitar and playing a bit. And and talking to the audience. So I was exposed to David at a really young age. Then when I was at school, I was at Bromley Grammar and he broke through. He, I, Space Oddity became a hit because it was chosen by the BBC to be the soundtrack of their coverage of the moon landings in July, 1969. And finally, after 10 years of not being able to give it away in every kind of genre, he was an overnight sensation. And he was ours because he was local. There's nothing like a local hero. So we used to go after school to Bromley Market Square, the very Bromley Market Square that he wrote about famously, jump on the 227 bus, go down to Beckenham, and walk up South End Road to Haddon Hall where he lived and knock on the door and sort of doorstep him really. You know, I was in training to be a journalist even at that young age. And usually Angie, who was by then his wife, would answer the door and she'd kind of sigh and go, oh God, you lot again. And, you know, people were on that doorstep who grew up to be Boy George and Billy Idol and Susie Sue. There was a real sort of sense of something was changing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we were really too young to understand. But we knew that this was where our local hero lived. So she'd give us signed photos and send us off home. And I said to my friend Natasha, you know, one day, she's going to be out and he's going to ask us in for tea. We just have to keep coming back. And eventually that's what happened. And it turned out David Bowie and I had a lot in common, apart from our our surname, uh, which he'd obviously changed his, but he'd done a summer season down in Margate, for example. And he played pitch and part with my granddad, who ran a little pitch and part green by Margate Station. My granddad had been quite a well-known footballer in his day. 
he played for Everton and Southend United and so on. And there was there were famous footballers in the family. But David wasn't really interested in sport. He was more of a golfer. Yeah, well, later. I think you later. Um, but he wasn't really a sporty type, was he? So we talked about that, you know, and his 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 mother's background was the Kent Coast and so on. And after that, I kept bumping into him. I was at college in Paris uh, on my year out. I, I did one of those language degrees where you take a year in the, one of the countries. And I, I chose Paris, he wouldn't. And we were in this place called Chartier, quite a famous, very cheap restaurant. And went upstairs into this big sort of cavernous space and just sort of looked around. And, and at the furthest away table was David Bowie sitting by himself with a flat cap on and just sort of having a drink. And, and I went over, I thought he'll never remember me, but he did. And he had this little phrase, he said, you again. And uh, sat down and had a quick chat. And I thought, you know, I, I thought it before, I've got to grow up and be with people like this. I've got, to, my, my life was very suburban. Although my father had quite an exciting job as a Fleet Street journalist. I knew that I had to be among people like David. How was I going to do that? I wasn't artistic. I wasn't remotely musical. Never could play anything or sing. And the pennies did drop. And I did realise that I could do what my father had done. He'd been a professional footballer. He became a, a Fleet Street football writer and then a boxing correspondent, ultimately a columnist. I could follow that route. And I could go on the road with bands and write about them. That was how it all began. So it did begin with David Bowie. And then when I was back and forth to New York uh, in the late 80s, when I was on Fleet Street, and there was no internet, of course, you had to go everywhere to do all your interviews. And so I was often in New York. I'd, I'd sometimes be there, you know, weekly. Seems unlikely now, doesn't it? But that's how it worked in those days. I bumped into him downtown and he'd say, do you want to have a coffee? And so we'd go and we'll have lunch sometimes and maybe have a supper. Indochine was a place we went to a lot. Mm. On Astor Place, that was his favorite restaurant. And he'd always have a penis colladis, called it. Um, and eventually, this is even more unlikely, he lent me his house in Mystique when I was writing the first draft of my first book on Freddie Mercury. And I went down there with my eldest daughter, who was eight at the time, and we stayed in his house. I slept in his bed. And all of that has got an, oh, yeah, OK, kind of ring about it, hasn't it? But it happened. And I have the photos. And so he has haunted me. He's never gone away. He was one of my earliest loves I remember that top of the pops performance you know anyone who was of a similar age who top of the pops was going to church on a Thursday night you couldn't miss it right. you had to see it because on a Friday morning at school everybody would be talking about it in the playground so you had to have seen what was going on yes it was a disaster if you'd missed something and uh, something had happened yeah. there's, there's no chance of ever seeing it again was there? yeah it's I mean I've watched it many times since then but that famous performance where where he and Mick Ronson are kind of flirting and it, it was just groundbreaking. You've never seen anything like that in your life. And I think we saw the future that night watching that performance. Mm -hmm. And I'd always been hooked on Barry and I, I obviously had all his albums and gone to his shows. I went to the show at Hammersmith Odeon as a schoolgirl, changing out of my uniform on the train, uh, where he retired the spiders from Mars and they had no idea about it. 
Mm -hmm. I was at that. My mother didn't know I was there, but I was. So yeah, he's he's been that sort of backbone for me. All right. these years. And he was quite an ordinary bloke. I mean, we tend to forget that he sang in an English accent. He spoke in a very London accent. He never made any attempt to try and disguise that. Right. And the one thing he did change was his teeth. And I was upset about that because that snaggle tooth look was very Bowie. But then when he married a mom, I suppose he had to smarten up a bit because she was a <laughs> model. <laughs> yeah, maybe he betrayed us a little bit by changing his details. Right. I mean, that's quite interesting. It kind of takes us on to a second point where you say your second rule is you must bombard yourself with info to the point you can't not write about this person. I mean, it sounds like you already had a book about David Bowie even before you even before you became a journalist. But you also mentioned that you went to some extraordinary lengths to research uh, Freddie Mercury's life. Tell me about some of those. It's a thing that you have to do. You can't just read in books where this person was born, uh, where they went to school, um, secondary school, uh, who they hung out with, the first clubs they went to. You've got to go there and see for yourself because it's never as it's portrayed in a book. And there are all kinds of ways of describing things. So I, I do find when I go to such places, they never look like I'd imagine them from what I've read. So I've got to go and see for myself and I've got to go and take pictures. And with Freddie, he was born on Zanzibar, uh, which at the time he was born, 1946, it was a British protectorate and um, colonial. It was a kind of colonial place off, off the east coast of Tanzania, what is today Tanzania. And he also went to school in India in a hill station called Panchkani. What choice did I have but to go <laughs> and, and see where, find where he was born? And, and go to his school. So those were quite epic journeys. I had a little girl Friday, my, my firstborn daughter again, and off we went. I had a great friend from college, Sandy Evans, who was living in Tanzania at the time, and he helped to facilitate my visit because it's quite a difficult thing to do, or at least it was then, and uh, all kinds of paperwork required, that kind of stuff. And then get to Zanzibar, and of course, being a... Um, a Muslim country, um, homosexuality is outlawed. And so nobody was really very interested in Freddie Mercury. I went to the records office to try and get a copy of his birth certificate. They always start with the birth certificate. It's very important because the information you get on a birth certificate can take you down all kinds of routes. Mm -hmm. uh, who countersigned it? You know, where was it? Where was it drawn up? That this kind of thing. And um, whose names are on there? Whose names are not on there? There's all kinds you can glean from that certificate. So I go along to the records office, which is something biblical. It's out of the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, they're all in kind of long uh, gowns and, and headdresses and so on. There's paperwork all over the floor. Those kind of plans chests, do you remember from advertising days with mm -hmm. kind of hundreds of flat drawers, little kind of narrow drawers, and nothing seemed to be organized at all. It was like casting the money changers out of the temple in, in the time of Jesus. You know, it was it was right back in time. And and I was I made a request at the desk when I went in and they they logged my request. And after about an hour, I was shown into an office to have a meeting with this gentleman um, who said, So you've come for a copy of Freddie Mercury's birth certificate. And I said, Yes, please. And he said, We don't have it. We did have it. 
but it's gone. It was stolen. Somebody came in here to ask to see it years ago, and it disappeared. Presumably, it was put on a pile of one of these kind of toppling piles of papers, and somebody swiped it and sold it, which turned out to be the case, because further down the line, when I was writing the book, having got all the research and gathered all my information, I was in the writing process, and I was contacted by letter uh, by a woman from Argentina who had a copy of the birth certificate and she bought it, this copy from a doctor in Oman. And she was coming to London and she didn't want any money for it, but she offered to bring it to me. And it was indeed the birth certificate and nobody had seen it before. So, you know, had I not gone to Zanzibar and gone down that trail, I wouldn't have, this is the other thing, magic starts to happen. I can never explain this, but once you commit yourself to a project like this, and of course it's enormous and it takes a hell of a long time, but but little things start to happen that you hadn't expected, such as being contacted out of the blue by a stranger from Argentina who wants to give you a copy of the birth certificate. Things like that always happen when I'm researching and writing a book. So then the next thing I have to try and find out where Freddie lived and there, I think there were about 15 different places offered to me as, oh, this is definitely where Freddie's parents lived. This is where he grew up. And of course, nobody really knew. But I managed to track down a cousin of his. So uh, this girl's father was a brother of Freddie's father. And she took me to the building, a very, very modest two-story, plain concrete building where Freddie lived when he was a very young child. And there is a small museum in Zanzibar today, which amounts to little more than a bunch of framed pictures on a series of walls. But there's a grand piano in there that they claim is the piano Freddie learned to play. Well, I know for a fact, having been in the building, that piano would never have fitted in the flat where (laughs) Freddie's family lived. So I think there's a bit of creative license going on there. It's a nice idea. (laughs) <laughs> and they had it in the garden well yeah but there wasn't a garden there's just a yard I mean it's it was a very sort of basic quite dirty place with a shameful history Zanzibar they've turned it into a very glamorous destination today lots of honeymooners go to Zanzibar because there were white talcum powder beaches and glorious ocean and and wonderfully restored mansions where you can stay under the mosquito nets and so on but Nothing like how it was in Freddie's young day. Right. And of course, the revolution, which is always overlooked and not really talked about. And Freddie himself never talked about it either. Right. I mean, it's the temptation, you know, with uh, going to these great lengths, you know, to touch Freddie Mercury's desk and stand on his childhood cricket pitch and these things. Is the temptation for you to not so much kind of cut corners but keep researching so extensively that you kind of have to have a word with yourself and remind yourself that you're supposed to be writing a book you know rather than just accumulate more and more and more information the important thing is that you it's a bit like when you write a novel okay so you we are told the best way to to get a handle on your character is to know everything about them so you write their life story their biography you know what's their favorite color what they like to eat for breakfast what car they drive if they had a pony what would it be called all that kind of stuff you don't bring anything of that into the story and it's much the same with researching a book about a person who actually lived you've got to know all that stuff Mm -hmm. 
You don't necessarily write it. But for me, I find the best way to get under their skin and to piece together who they were as a child, which is enormously important to the adult and the rock star that they became. It's always about the childhood. It's always about the style of upbringing they had and the void that was created by that. And there's always a void. So I have to go there. I have to find that out. And I have to know who that child was who grew up into be to be that person. Right. I don't necessarily write all that stuff, but I have to know it. Right. Right. I mean, I think there's often also a thing with um, with celebrities, especially big celebrities. I mean, I've, I, this definitely happened in a book that I was reading about Frank Sinatra recently. You you seem to have, see this thing, this phenomenon, quite a lot, where they they their obsession with becoming famous at some point just takes over everything and they're prepared, prepared to sacrifice uh, family relationships, uh, lifelong friendships. The desire to become famous is overwhelming. Do you find this quite a sort of common phenomenon amongst these people? It can be. Uh, I mean, if you take, if you take Brian Jones, for example, and Keith Richards for Brian Jones, the drive was fame and fortune for Keith, couldn't care less about that stuff. It was about the music. Uh-huh. But, you know, it is for some, but not for others. And, again, you've got to explore the childhood to see what was missing, to work out why the drive for fame and fortune specifically. It's certainly not in all of them. But sometimes those two things are indivisible. Sometimes they're the same thing. So, um, And sometimes the music is the means to an end. So every every story is different, even though they're all the same, because they're all rock stars. The story is different. That's what keeps me doing it anyway. Right. right. Now, your third rule, Leslie Ann, is an excellent one. I've, and I've not really thought about this before, but I completely agree with it. You say spend a long time on your first chapter. Why is this so essential? This is where you bring the reader in the first chapter. So I I feel that a full overview of the story and it's it's that it, there was a line that I, I we've heard it said many times like i i don't know who said it um tell them what you're going to tell them tell them and then tell them what you just told them so the first chapter is all about telling what you're going to tell them and giving a complete overview of the story and really this is why you should read this book because i'm going to to fill in the, the answers as to A, B, C, and X, Y, Z. And you have to place the artist in the firmament. You have to explain why they matter and why this person should spend their time reading about this person. Um, so set them in context. I think context is a really important word. And by the end of the first chapter, your readers should be absolutely biting your hand off to to know what happens next and yes and to read the rest of it so you go into detail in your following chapters and obviously you wrap it all up and conclude it uh, but still pose questions in your final chapter because you have to keep them guessing but but the first chapter must deliver it's your shop front it's your shop window really yes um it's like selfages isn't it you go and look at the front of selfages and you think oh i like the look of that that and that i'm going in so that is your way in the first chapter. And it can take a really long time to write that. What is a long time? Some people, for some people, a long time is a day. For some people, a long time is a month. 
or maybe even longer. But you've got to get that right. Mm. What's and your not- idea of a long time? As a Fleet Street journalist, presumably yeah. you get your first chapter done by lunchtime. Well, yeah, it's um, I'm quite hard on myself in terms of word count and so on. And I, I do work like a, a Fleet Street journalist still. Um, I would say your first chapter needs to be five to 6,000 words long and that you should probably spend a couple of weeks on it, getting it right. Because you're doing all the cross-checking as well. Right. Uh, that's how long I would take on it, about two weeks. And um, how, how many words do you try and write per day? Because often I've had people on this podcast, a lot of novelists who are quite happy with, uh, with 500 words a day, which kind of makes me... Um, which I find quite shocking. You know, I'm sure they could get a few more out of themselves. What, what, uh, what, do what you... else they're doing, doesn't it? If they've got a full time job as well, or if that's their, if that is their full time pursuit, or whether they like to go out for a large lunch and get drunk <laughs> at lunchtime and, and never sort of come back. I know writers who do that. My comfortable writing speed is 2,000 words a day, five days a week. I take Saturdays off and I see my mum on Sundays. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, I find that that head down approach and not missing a single day. Because if I miss a day, I find it a real struggle to get back into it the next day. But that's what I'm used to. When I was on Fleet Street, I was writing every day. Most of what we wrote didn't make it into the paper, but that's the nature of a newspaper. Uh, you know, you're they're commissioning 15 to 1 all the time. It's relentless. Only the best stuff gets in. And other things use up what you've written because of breaking news that new phrase that is everywhere mm. these days. But 2,000 words a day is comfortable for me. Okay. I sometimes write more towards the end of a book when I'm getting close to a deadline. I can go up to four or 5,000 words a day. But um, a bad day for me, a slow day is 1,000 words. Okay. And when you sit down to write the book, uh, do, uh, do you know, you already know in your head what it's going to be? Or, or, or are you one of these people who just lets it unfold and take its own, you know, the book leads you? You can do that with fiction. You can't do that with nonfiction. You've got to have a plan. And I plan it meticulously. I make a list of all the material I've got, all the contributors I've got, all the points that I want to include. You can't say you do a book about John Lennon. You can't write his whole life, every single thing that happened, every date, every person, every event, because you'd end up with a set of encyclopedias. So you have to decide what things you're going to hone in on, Mm -hmm. what things really interests me is what that boils down to uh because you just you couldn't do it so and it has to be um a take on his story as well and and to anyone who didn't know anything about john lennon my children for example uh it has to explain him succinctly and to give clues to his personality and how he grew and changed and how the john lennon who died was nothing like the John Lennon who was born. And and what that, I'm not going to use that word beginning with J, but what that sequence of events was about and why. Um, Yeah, with, with, so with my books, I will write a plan. Uh, I'll usually break it down into parts because, you know, there are, there are crossroads in everybody's lives. So you reach a crossroads and then it's a, a whole different you is coming at the next part. So, so break it down into parts, break it then down into chapters. And um, chapters ought to be roughly the same length. You've got a little bit of room to play with, but, but for the sake of symmetry, they need to be roughly the same length. And then 
decide how many chapters, what's going into what chapter, write all that down, plan goes on the wall. And every day when I come to work to my desk, I know exactly where I'm writing. Right. And I know where my source material is. And all the interviews have been transcribed. All that information is on my computer and I can draw, draw that down and, and put it in the right place and so on. But yeah, the shape of it, it's really important to me to have the shape of it before I start. Okay. Now, rule four, I think this is, uh, this is a good one as well. You say, be fearless about the bringing of something new. You're going to upset some people, or in the, or in the case of Queen fans, many people, with what you expose. Um, so what, what sort of new things have so upset Queen fans? Everything upsets Queen fans. <laughs> uh, I get a huge amount of abuse from these people. Um, mostly they haven't read the book. I had an email from somebody down in New Zealand the other day, and she said, first of all, I want to tell you that I'm not going to waste a dollar on your book. And, and please leave us alone and stop writing about Freddie Mercury. We don't care what you say. And uh, Brian May says you you didn't know Freddie Mercury very well anyway. So I think, well, I don't reply to these things because why? But, but the answer to that is we've just wiped out a whole genre here, haven't we, if we think that? Um, the writers of... of historical biographies. So every biographer of William Shakespeare, Charles Dickens, Jesus Christ, they never met their subjects. Mm -hmm. They pieced together their lives from the fragments they left behind. And then they talk to people who did know them intimately and they create their story. I did know Freddie, I did meet him several times. I did go to gigs given by the band in different parts of the world. I did interview him, I did spend time with him. So it's not true to say that I didn't know him at all, but I didn't know him intimately. I wasn't one of his friends. That doesn't rule me out from writing a biography about him because that's my job. And anybody can write anything about anybody as long as it's true. It's very bizarre, isn't it? This, um, the ease with which you can offend somebody. It doesn't just happen in books and music. I think football fans can be exactly the same, that uh, you're, almost, you're not allowed to have an opinion unless you are... Um, you know, unless you've virtually got a PhD in the subject or uh, a member of the that individual's family or been to every game, whatever it happens to be. It's very, um, uh, it's a very interesting phenomenon that some people are self-anointed guardians of the flame and everybody else is by definition profoundly ignorant. It's so true. I, why does it make a difference? It's um, the thing that drove the Freddie Mercury book, the new one, Love of My Life, was the fact that it occurred to me that Freddie had become someone completely different from the Freddie who lived and died. At the time he died, he, he was closeted. He hadn't come out. And kids today don't know that. They assume that Freddie was always out and proud. He is today an icon for the LGBTQ community, but he, he would have run a mile from that during his lifetime. He's also become a poster boy for diversity. And again, he never spoke about his Zanzibar roots, the fact that he went to school in India. As far as Freddie was concerned, he washed up in London at the age of 18 and he became British and white. You'd have to rethink that today if he were alive. But the fact that I even express that offends the fans because as far as they're concerned, Freddie is a god. He walks on water and we can't say anything about the mortal individual who lived mm -hmm. without incurring their wrath. I think if they read the book, 
they probably take it back because they realize that I'm not chipping away at Freddie. I loved Freddie, I still do. I think he was a sensational performer, songwriter, and a, an extremely unusual and worthwhile individual. And I have celebrated him. I celebrate all these artists in my books. I don't set up to knock them down. Right. Now, this challenge of, of bringing something new, um, I mean, as an interviewer, how have you gone about extracting that? I mean, because obviously people have been interviewed a lot or they, they tend to get a bit weary of ans answering the same old questions and they kind of go onto autopilot a little bit. But also, you know, some of these people you've interviewed as a journalist are genuinely intimidating. I mean, to go into a room with, the, you know, people like Frank Sinatra or Princess Margaret or Grace Jones, you know, how... How do you get something new out of people as terrifying as that? They're usually not set up interviews. This is usually me being a chancer, okay. a classic hack. So I find myself in a situation where I'm in the same room as Frank Sinatra, which is what happened. It was an awards ceremony and uh, I was just there, part of the throng. And I was sent actually by my editor at U Magazine, The Mail on Sunday. And he said, Frank Sinatra's 75th birthday is coming up. Go and get an interview. Nick, it's not going to happen. You know, he doesn't give interviews. Yes, well, just go there and get yourself into... Shout something at him. And shout something <laughs> at him. And we always had a rule on newspapers. If you've got three answers, you've got a double-page spread. So all you've got to do is belt out three questions. Whatever they say doesn't really matter because then you've got colour. Then you can write around it. You mm -hmm. can write about their expressions and the, the mood they were in, what they were wearing, how they treated other people, all of those things. It's all observation. Much more, whenever you read a feature of that kind, there's very little Q&A in that. It's mostly colour. So that I, was, I became quite good at that because I was put to the test many times. But in a situation like, I don't know, say, this, this wasn't me, but somebody interviewed Keith Richards and he said that when his father died, he put the, he put the ashes into a spliff and he smoked his dad, which of course caused utter furore and outrage. People could not believe this when they read this in the papers. So of course, later on, he took it back. And then many years later, he, well, he said, I was only joking. And then many years later, he said, yeah, actually, I did. It was only a bit. But I just thought it was kind of a nice way to commemorate my death. See, with some of these people, you never quite know whether they're telling the truth. And actually, the truth becomes irrelevant. Because why let it get in the way of a good story? Is exactly. exactly. But I, I feel for the sake of, of accuracy that one needs to give both sides of the story and also question a little bit. If something that outrageous is said, approach it tongue in cheek, speculate, you know, say, well, he might have been joking. We probably will find out later down the line, but but never take it at face value because right. we're old enough and wise enough to, to understand that people play games with journalists. Yes. Uh, they get, as you said earlier, they get bored. They've, they've done this a hundred million times. They really don't want to give interviews. None of them does. So they will they will play with you and see what they can get away with. Yes, and, and it's, it sort of, kind of takes us quite interesting. So your last rule where you say be slavish to fact, but a flibbity gibbet about interpretation. So it's, it's like you say, it's all about the, uh, the presentation of this fragment of information. If you're going to put facts in, you've got to make sure that they're correct. So if you quote a date, go to every length possible to, to cross-check and cross-check that that is the correct date. There's nothing worse. And getting that wrong so if you're going to put that kind of fact into the story just make sure you've got it right have 
corroborating evidence. Uh, evidence is really important. Mark Lewison, the, the great Beatles historian, won't write anything for which there isn't evidence. Uh, he won't speculate. You know, it's all facts with Mark. So I'm I'm less driven by facts, but I if I inject them, they have to be right. Mm-hmm. And um, you also mentioned in when we were sort of again exchanging notes about this, you say you don't have to love your subject by the end, but you do have to understand them. I mean, are there are there many subjects that you've really gone off them, but after spending many months in there, you know, researching them? It's usually the other way around. I didn't like John Lennon very much when I started, but I. I loved the music, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so although I said earlier that you have to you have to love this person be- before you spend two years with them, in the case of John, it was the music I was obsessed with, not necessarily the character. I hadn't met John. I never met him because he'd gone off to live in New York with Yoko when I was still at school. So I didn't have that opportunity. I met all the other Beatles later down the line. But, but no, with John... Once I realized what a sad, dysfunctional childhood he had and how difficult life had been for him at the beginning and how he'd overcome and against the odds had triumphed and was still so complicated and was able to express his complications in a way that that could be useful universally. Because that is what songs do at the end of the day. They lift us out of ourselves and they help us to live, which makes them massively important it makes them fundamentally important to our lives Mm -hmm. and I love John by the end of that because of that and it just made me so sad and so angry that he died the way he did and when he did because there was so much more of him to come I'm sure that the best was yet to come with John and we were deprived of that and that's terrible no, you're an absolute demon in your, you know, your output is phenomenal. Your work rate is extraordinary. What, but what would your, give if you could choose, you know, what would your dream literary project be? Oh, goodness. Well, I've always said Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, she's never written, obviously never written a memoir. Nobody's ever, there are lots of books about Queen, but she hasn't written them. If I were given the opportunity to interview her, imagine the life all the inner life is what I mean. Uh, we know about her, her public life and we know about her family. It's everywhere. It's well documented. But how did she feel? That's the question I always want to ask. You know, when she was driving trucks during the war and, and when her father died and she had to come back from her trip to Africa to, to be queen and, and her coronation and the birth of her children and the relationship with her husband and all the things that have gone on in the Commonwealth and around the world over all the years. What did she really think and feel about these things? We don't know that. She's never told us. And now at her great age and with not long left to live, all of that will be lost when she's gone. I think that would just be the most remarkable book to write. I know she is quite extraordinary, isn't she? I was just reading a book the other day about how, um, which kind of gave a sense of the the great extraordinary span of her life and how she, you know, she remembered, or she was in the room with Princess Margaret before the, in a room before the war when uh, the German foreign minister von Ribbentrop came to visit and uh, insisted on sort of giving Nazi salutes in somewhere in Buckingham Palace, it must have been, you know, when, when greeting people. And Princess and uh, so the Princess Elizabeth, Princess Margaret, then were both kind of giggling at this ridiculous man, and were told off, you know, for not, you know, uh, obeying protocol sort of thing, or you know, being naughty children. 
So the fact that they could, she is old enough to remember that is itself extraordinary, I think, you know, that, that because that really does feel like a long, long time ago. And then also this book said that nobody in all of history, quite possibly, has ever been privy to so many state secrets. So just the things that she knows, the things that go on in the world that we don't get to hear about, that she has been, you know, she has been privy privy to and and often had to sort of share an opinion on or or de declare her sort of you know where she stands on such things it's just uh, that you know if somebody ever sits down to write that biography of the queen that is um i don't know how many volumes that is going to require well, that's a set of encyclopedias isn't it but but yeah her feelings her feelings are what it all boils down to really how do we feel very few people know any of us individuals we don't share ourselves deeply with very many others in our lives do we but, no. but all of those secrets inside the queen they will all go to her grave and i think that's a great shame she independently has upheld the monarchy i don't think the monarchy would still exist but for her i don't believe that prince george will ever become king i don't think that prince charles has it in him to do what his mother has done. And I think if William ever makes it to the throne, that'll be a surprise because nobody has her gravitas and the monarchy has become irrelevant. It is only still rolling on because of her. Mm. And that can't be for too many more years. And I think we as a nation, we've moved on from the need to look up to a monarchy. We know too much now. The internet opened up the world. It was a marvelous invention, but in so many ways it it has destroyed the world, hasn't it? Right. I have to say. And I so wonder what the Queen feels about that as well. Right. So before you get onto your 15 volume life of Elizabeth II, what's next <laughs> for you? What's what? What's next? Okay. Well, here we go. Everyone will say, oh, she's jumping on the bandwagon because Charlie Watts died. Actually, not true. I signed the contract last year to write a retrospective of the Rolling Stones because the 60th anniversary of their first ever gig at the Marquee on the 12th of July, 1962, obviously falls next year in 2022. So I was commissioned to write this and it's really a retrospective of their 60 years for my kids' generation who know nothing beyond the songs. They, they know Honky Tonk Woman, they know Satisfaction, they don't know much else. They'll go and see a gig and love the music. But who were these people? Where did they come from? What was life like for them before they became a Rolling Stones? And, you know, the question I've been asking many interviews on the radio recently since poor Charlie died, um, will they survive the death of Charlie Watts? Well, they survived the death of their founder, Brian Jones. Um, they survived the departure of Mick Taylor. Uh, they survived the going of Bill Wyman. I, I don't see until the day that either Mick or Keith drops dead on stage, because I'm sure that's the way it'll happen, that the Rolling Stones will not end. They can't, because they've made this, this rod for their own backs. They have to keep rolling on. Ultimately fascinating, aren't they? It was bad. Quite, quite. Quite. And brilliant. That's fantastic, Leslie. And thank you so much. Now, I urge everyone to read uh, Love of My Life by Leslie Ann Jones. This is the Freddie Mercury book published by Coronet, £20. It's a magnificent read, and I hope it finds a gigantic audience in spite of the uh, all the difficult Queen um, obsessives. I hope they don't uh, prevent it uh, reaching it, finding, it so, finding its audience. Thank you ever so much. You're very generous.
It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Leslie. Thank you. Thank you. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Mm -hmm. 